he left a message that basically said on the video, his purpose in life was greater than his circumstances. When I heard that, it really hit me between the eyes to think, I've never, I've never looked at my life in that way at all. You know, Gandhi has a life goal or something. I don't, that's, that's not, I just, you know, on this normal path of graduation, job, dot, dot, dot. Um, and I, I remember writing it on my whiteboard in my, my bedroom, just saying purpose greater than sign circumstances. And, and I thought, well, that seems like a really sensible way of being able to just frame everything that I do, but what is my purpose? Welcome to the MindTech podcast, where we dive deep into the unsolved problems in mental health with the founders, investors, and experts building technology to solve them. Startups led by founders who have lived through the very experiences that they later come to solve hold a very special place in all our hearts. And MindData is a bright example of this. Sean Ruain, the co-founder and CEO, overcame suicidal depression after eventually having therapy. Now, Sean dedicates his life to helping others gain insight into their mind and access the support they need by leveraging the power of data analytics. Listen to learn how Sean is building the service that he needed, the advantages of his business model and mind data's plans to understand a user's mental state without any input needed. One of my favorite things learning about yourself and mind data is the real human story behind it. Could we start there and hear from you what makes this such a human driven business and mission that you're on? Yeah, of course, with pleasure. So yeah, my journey started back in 2015 and uh, the catalyst was I'm the eldest of three boys. <clears throat> my middle brother, Lee, he unfortunately lost his girlfriend at the, right at the end of 2014 uh, to a stage four glioblastoma, which is uh, what ended up being a terminal brain tumour. Um, and, you know, from her first kind of headache, you know, a asymptomatic from first headache, all the way through to passing away it was very quick i think it was about eight or nine months um so it's very rapid from just normal life my brother had been dating holly for 10 years by the time they were 19 20. um so it was an enormous loss for my brother my mum that had lost an adopted daughter you know seen holly grow up from a, a young girl literally to, to a young woman and we've never questioned that they were going to spend the rest of their lives together um and actually at the time it was the first death that i had ever really dealt with personally at the time we still had all of our grandparents and what a what a privilege that was to be relatively old and still have all of our grandparents so i just did the classic man thing uh, and buried my emotions uh, i thought strong and silent would be the right thing to do to look after my my younger brother be there for my mum and that worked for a few months to be honest um but as is true with with most uh you know things that you push down they will find their way to the surface and manifest themselves in one way or another it could be alcoholism goodness knows mine ended up being depression that then quickly uh turned into suicidal depression come april 2015 so i'll pause there but that that kind of sets the scene as to, to kind of what led uh, you know, me into experiencing suicidal depression back in 2015. Uh, I, I really feel for you and your family there. It's something that is just so tragic and so unfair, something that, you know, no one deserves and you couldn't have done anything about. And 
it, it just shows the reality of how anyone can be so affected by these harsh, harsh events in life, which could send us down very difficult paths with our mental health. And that's why the support needs to be so readily available. So yeah. I really feel for you there. Thank yeah. you for sharing that. How did you go from that to finding a real sense of mission in, in mental health? And of course, it's it's clear that, you know, you felt so strongly about the importance of mental health, but how did that become your calling? Well, I think when when I slipped into really bad depression, I was very fortunate to be at university, at the University of Buckingham, and they had an amazing well-being team there to support students going through certain challenges. And I was very, very fortunate to be looked after, if you if you will, uh, by an amazing therapist called Betty. Betty was uh, a wonderful therapist uh, originally from Arizona over in the US and I had then moved over with her English husband and, and lived in tiny little Buckingham. And for the next 18 months, you know, I had a, a weekly session with Betty and she, you know, she saved my life. She, she, really, she really did. And it was during that time that I happened to be watching a video on a US Marine that had, was speaking about his mental health challenges. I suspect that, you know, in the evenings and I was, I was looking for videos and people that I could relate to and, and understand that maybe there's some light at the end of the, the tunnel. And uh, I'm very fortunate to found this video. And he, I think he had, you know, attempted to you know, end his life in Iraq in 2004. And anyway, he, he left a message that basically said on the video, his purpose in life was greater than his circumstances. And it was something that helped him frame his experiences. And when I heard that, it really hit me between the eyes to think, I've never, I've never looked at my life in that way at all. You know, Gandhi has a life goal or something. I don't. That's, that's not, I just, you know, on this normal path of graduation, job, dot, dot, dot. Um, and I, I remember writing it on my whiteboard in my, my bedroom, just saying purpose greater than sign circumstances. And, and I thought, well, that seems like a really sensible way of being able to just frame everything that I do. But what is my purpose? And so I just thought, well, I'll, I'll just kind of basically throw, throw a dart at a dartboard effectively and just chose this number of, right, I'll, I'll pay Betty's work forward and try to impact one million people uh, in my lifetime to improve their mental health. That seemed like a relatively unachievable goal. And that's quite good because that means I'll always be striving for it, like the horizon. Um, and so then I thought, well, I'll hang my hat on that. God knows how I'm going to do that. But that's going to be my, my mission in life. So, so that's where it came from. And that's, that's really where I decided that's what I'm going to do in life. Brilliant. Turning such a negative, dark experience into an opportunity to bring so much light into the world and, and to other people's lives. It takes a very special human being to do that. And um, I can really see that's, uh, that's who you are. Oh, so um, it's a pleasure. What do you think were the real unsolved problems here? Where, did, where has society gone wrong to have mm -hmm. ended up in a situation like that? Well, I mean, I guess... You know, the, the factual answer would be there's probably a near infinite number of data points that lead to, you know, people suffering from mental health challenges. And it's extremely subjective. One thing I'll just I'll just take a very quick diversion and I promise I'll bring it back. One thing that uh, I learned from my brother, Lee, um, and, and we learned this on the, on the journey together, is that a subjective 10 on a pain scale um, that, that you can't compare them you know what lee was going through was a 10 out of 10 
And we went through this period of, of him, understandably as a young man, uh, being angry at the world. He would see smokers, drug takers, and think, well, why, why aren't they dying? You know, Holly was a healthy young person. It was very angry, totally understandably. And um, he said, well, what that person is going through, a divorce, let's say, that's nothing. At least you're still alive. And, um, you know, between the two of us, we started to learn over a number of years. Actually, that's not true. You know, what that person is going through, maybe they've lost, lost their job. That's a 10 out of 10 for them. It's the same as your 10 out of 10 of, of losing your partner. You know, th there's not some objective uh, scale. So the reason why I say that and bring it back is that I think mental health challenges are so subjective. It's so difficult to be able to just produce some objective framework that says if as a society we do X, then actually we won't be experiencing Y. However, with all that being said, from my perspective, there are a couple of uh, aspects. I think number one is, I think the, the culture in which I was raised um, as, as a, a young man, um, that, you know, these classic things of, you know, grow a pair, for example, um, you know, uh, boys don't cry, uh, man up. You know, these, these are just sayings that almost become, you know, invisible in our day-to-day -day speech. And yet the subconscious programming of, as a man, you shouldn't be emotional. Any sign of vulnerability or emotionality is a weakness. And weakness is the opposite of being a man. You should be strong. You should protect. You should be there to care for those around you. Um, and I think that was the, probably the first programming issue, if you will, in my mind, and many others, of course. And the other aspect was that I, I, I'm a big believer in the framework of if you can speak to the right person, at the right time about the right thing, you're doing a good thing for supporting. Now I saw the right person, Betty. We spoke about the right thing, but it wasn't at the right time. It was it was too late. Uh, I was kind of dragging myself in there post you know suicidal ideation. So it was too late. So I think that whatever we can do to get you know that crossover of seeing the right person, right time, talking about the right thing, regardless of the subjective experiences, that's generally going to be a good framework for organizations, universities, therapists, whatever it may be to follow. So it's a very long answer, but that, that's kind of my view, view on that. So right person, right time, right care, that is the formula for reacting to deterioration in mental health and changing how we are socially programmed through cultural changes, more, um, you know, more important nourishing uh, nurturing conversations in society those are what are going to lead to more healthy social programming for future generations that will prevent and proactively address mental health issues and we'll come on to this topic of proactive and reactive care uh, as i know mind data spend some time thinking about both of those things but yeah. before we get on to mind data what were some of the first ideas you came up with to solve this? And why did you land with mind data? Um, so I guess it, for, for a bit of context, once I graduated from university, I carried this life goal with me since then. But it wasn't the first thing that I really worked on. It was actually on uh, the early team of an HR technology company called Clear Review. Nothing directly really to do with mental health. It was about employee development which you know, has its roots in employee well-being, of course, but the primary focus on feedback, goal setting, uh, regular one-to-ones. So in the background, I wasn't actually working on anything to do with mental health. 
Um, but the reason why I say that is over the, the course of those five years from kind of, you know, three or four of us on the early team all the way through to being acquired two years ago now, um, I really embedded my, you know, my love for technology and success. So that was one foundation. And whatever I was going to do at that point moving forward was always going to be a Venn diagram of technology and, you know, the softer human side of my life goal. So that was the first thing that I knew. I knew I wanted to use technology. And in fact, I probably needed to use technology for, you know, scale, if you will. That's really important. Uh, I wasn't ever going to do it as a self-employed therapist, uh, as an example. You wouldn't reach a million, a million people. So that was, that was the first thing that I knew. Um, I started to write a book at one point called Recondition. Uh, I got to the, the first page and it said for Betty, uh, because um, in 2019, heartbreakingly, Betty died of cancer. So I, I kept in touch with Betty via email and her emails just stopped one day. And so I think the, the hardest thing about building my data is knowing that she's not allowed to see this, which is, which is really sad. Um, and so that planted another seed of whatever I use technology for, it has to amplify the Bettys of this world. Uh, I, I saw that in 2019-20, there was a big shift towards counselor in your pocket type technology, AI driven chatbots, things like that. And by the way, I think they serve an amazing purpose. I'm not here to diminish those. It just wasn't the angle I wanted to go down. I couldn't imagine my journey being absent of a human like Betty. So it was all about technology and it was what technology can I build to amplify the human to human relationship and support. So that was the thinking uh, and the thought process before I kind of landed on my first technology idea for Mind Data. Well, may I just say, Mind Data is, I feel, yours and Betty's legacy, and everyone who's been involved in your story, of course. But I hope that she, you know, really does live on through all of the impact that Mind Data has. So, um, thank you. That that is yeah. part of her legacy. Um, thank you. Uh, no, you're very welcome. Um, so. Of course, amplifying the, the patient therapist relationship is a worthy goal. And that, of course, helps therapists do their job better. It helps patients engage better with their therapy, have greater insights of you know, what's working, what's not. But what do you think you were missing that you didn't get in your mm -hmm. journey? Yeah. So I think that the first point was to look at therapy and recognize it probably wasn't broken per se mm. it did its did its job it saved my life um but there were elements that that did stand out to me that at the time i didn't question until i was looking at how could i improve the therapy experience the first one was my subjective experience of every time i'd walk into a room with betty or therapists since betty as well it would always start the same way sean good to see you how have you been what's been going on and with a sober mind, it's a relatively benign question. It's quite easy to articulate a week's worth of experiences and thoughts. But my God, when I was depressed, and certainly when I was suicidally depressed, that was an enormously difficult question to answer. And so I found that that experience of trying to download, you know, experiences and thoughts, wrestling with recency bias, it was a really inefficient way of starting. Now, I found it therapeutic you know, getting things off my chest and, you know, rambling on for five to 10 minutes, but it wasn't therapy. And if I wasn't on the clock with Betty, 
it wouldn't have ended up being a problem. I, it wouldn't have stood out to me. The reason why it stood out to me was, you know, what they you have a what they call a therapy hour, which is actually only 15 minutes to allow the therapist time to write notes up, change over, get ready for for the next client. So you don't have a full hour. And those 50 minutes, if you're only if you're only having them once per week, they go very quickly. And so any minute that you'll feel like you're not in therapy, getting that help is a wasted minute, if you will. So I knew that I wanted to try to uh, improve that, and uh, you know later learned that that's a standard practice in therapy. So you know patient-led approach, you let them talk about what you want, and whatever comes to top of mind is the most important thing to talk about. However, subjectively. I still don't believe that that is true because very often within 48 hours of having my therapy session, uh, something would randomly pop into my mind and I'd think, God, I really wanted to speak to Betty about that. So intrinsically, I knew that I wasn't speaking about the right things. I was just speaking about things I could remember, let's be honest. Um, and so with the backdrop of building an employee development system of a manager talking to their team members, two people turning up being you know, very much prepared with insights to have a meaningful development conversation that seemed completely at odds with the way we did therapy so i wanted to solve that issue of not relying on recency bias from a patient perspective and two ensuring that both the patient and the therapist had relevant insights so you could relatively quickly get into a meaningful therapy conversation talking about the right things so making better use of your time in therapy and making the most of therapy while you while you're in the session and of course that's going to lead to better engagement better outcomes the therapist is going to be more you know more well prepared i wonder though what do you think would help someone get to a therapist sooner because you mentioned that you had the right care the right person but not necessarily at the right time how is mind data going to try and tackle that issue of trying to get people to see therapists sooner when they needed it earlier than see waiting for a deterioration yeah absolutely so this this now comes into what we call in the startup world a pivot and a pivot is where you start out with a founder's hypothesis and you say i think that by building x for y will achieve z um, and you go out and try to test that, uh, disprove it if you can. Um, and so whilst I was testing with self-employed therapists, um, you know, we, we had a, a, a host of challenges, um, you know, with a, engagement adoption from certain therapists at certain times, because it's just not the way they're trained to do things, understandably. Um, but as you said, it did come on to this idea of, well, how can I be truly proactive with getting people the right support? So this is where we started to deploy our technology into more of an organizational context, whether it's a university or a business, for example. And we enabled um, our technology to analyze journal entries, to derive themes and mood uh, tracking, things like that, and aggregate all of this insight, um, obviously truly anonymized, so that um, the organization can have live mental health data and trends so that they can then be proactive and provide relevant support to relevant groups of people or indeed individuals at the right time. And that may not always be seeing a therapist. Initially, it may well be having a resilience training session with a sales team 
as an example, um, you know, or it may be that your female medical students at a university may need, you know, X workshop or whatever it may be. They need more one-to-one -one tutor time, who knows whatever it may be. So that really was our step into actually we can get ahead of the curve. We don't have to be entirely reactive with the way that people are supported. Let's give the people in charge the right real-time data on the right people so they can action in near real time to prevent, maybe even prevent the need of therapy entirely, it, it, even in, in the best case scenario. So what you're saying is through organizations, you get access to a pool of people, some of whom may have needed therapy a long time ago, some who may be on their way to needing therapy, some who are in a perfectly fine situation. Yeah. And you get everyone to utilize this app and mm -hmm. have certain data points about them tracked so that they can have insight into how their mental state is doing. And from that, they can be given the right intervention at the right time, even if it's a small self-help resource. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's exactly that's exactly the mission and, and the goal. Absolutely. Okay, so what kind of data points do you track about each person? Is it the same for everyone? Yeah. So yes, number one, it is the same for everyone. So it's a universal approach. And if you are to provide aggregated insights to a, an organization on cohorts, you do need some level of common denominators that are being tracked uh, so that you can compare and contrast. It, it makes it much easier. Um, so the one thing that I learned from Clearview, this previous company, was simplicity always wins out. When you build technology and it does any host of 20 different cool things, that actually sells better because you can do so many things with it. But actually to embed technology in the long run, just be very simple and intuitive. That's always going to win out in the long run. So we only, we only capture primarily two data points from the end user. It's how you are feeling on that lean subjective zero to 10 scale. And if you want to, to add a few words, notes, thoughts, sentences around why you're feeling that as well. So the action in doing this is, you know, I loved journaling when I was going through therapy. I found it really important to quite cathartic experience, um, mini therapy sessions to, to, you know, not just recognize what, you know, how am I feeling, but, but why. Um, but it also improves self-awareness. It's really helpful for me to look at my journey over the past nine months and understand my triggers. Um, so that, they're the two data points that we do. And then we use artificial intelligence to derive multiple insights out of that and it could be quantitative trend analysis it could be sentiment analysis there are so many clever things that you can do with ai based off those two data points then with those data points you aggregate them and then you can filter by subcategory of student or employee for example so that you can get quite targeted insights in real time on targeted groups of of, of individuals hmm. okay fantastic so with that vast amount of data, I'm sure the insights become that much more meaningful, right? And I think going through organizations is a fantastic way to to build that data lake. Is, is that the business model now then, taking it organization by organization, as well as the kind of therapist by therapist route? Um, and yeah, could you just uh, elaborate a little bit more on the business model there? Yeah, with pleasure. So the business model was always going to be a recurring SaaS-based model. Now, initially, it was it was going to be based on monthly recurring revenue with monthly subscriptions. Um, 
And now this is going to be more focused on same principle, but annual recurring revenue. When you're an organization, typically it's better to sign up for say one year at a time rather than month by month, let's just say. So the, the financial model is, is, is that a software license that, that you use, SaaS-based. Um, and the primary focus now is an organizational setting. That, that organization may look at uh, a private company. It may be a university. We're, we're working with more universities now. It could be a sports team to enable them to have real-time data to compare and contrast against physical performance data, as an example. Um, so whilst our technology still does support self-employed therapists, we, at least for now, have, have taken the, the foot off driving that at the moment. Um, I think that um, we, we were slightly too early in the market. Um, we were getting great adoption, but we had to get uh, what we call like innovators. And I don't mean that in any kind of you know, disparaging way to people that weren't adopting it. It's a genuine term that when you look at this adoption curve of markets, you get the, uh, the, uh, the, um, the innovators and then the early adopters and then early majority. Um, and it just, it just transpired that the work we would need to do with the average self-employed therapist was quite a, quite a big change management journey that we take them on. And when we did that work to look at you know, 25 pounds per month subscription, to get the economy to scale, it's, it's just too difficult for, for a growing company to do. So yes, we still do support them, but we're not actively targeting them. What this has enabled us to do is build you know, AI dashboards that I've been talking about. We've never have needed that with self-employed therapists. Um, but this opens the door for clearer messaging, understanding and aligning with organizational goals that maybe self-employed therapists probably wouldn't have per se. Um, and so it feels a lot more aligned to the needs and requirements of these organizations where ultimately, regardless of what you're doing, data is king, whether it's your financial data, your employee engagement data, performance data, and now real-time mental health data, I think it's really important. Wonderful. So you are tracking all this about all the people in each organization. <laughs> With the interventions, what are you thinking? <laughs> are you thinking self-help resources, um, access to therapists? What other interventions are you thinking of? Well, that, yeah, that's a very good question. So at the moment, uh, Mind Data is an, um, uh, an intervention provider, if you will. We, we, we were born out of what can we do to facilitate existing frameworks and models? How do we amplify the existing support that you have as a university, whether that's a wellbeing team in situ, whether it's passive resources, how, what can we do to make sure that those uh, support mechanisms are being maximized uh, for the most effectiveness? Um, and I still think that's our primary mission, actually. I, I still think that's the case. Now, if we look further down the line, it may well be that if we continue to grow, that we start to bring some of those in-house. You know, it, 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 could, it could absolutely work out that way, where we pr produce our own library of, um, of resources. Maybe we have our own in-house team of therapists you know who knows that that may be where it's where it ends but i truly believe that right now the pandemic did an amazing job of drawing attention to this i think that a lot of organizations and universities over the last few years have done some superb things to improve those support networks but i do think that actually the the real-time measurement of effectiveness where to put the investment what's working for which group as well this equitable approach um, I still think needs improving. Um, I, I would love for, to see organizations move away from a one-size-fits-all spray-and-pray approach to more targeted, focused interventions for different groups of people. What works for one group probably won't work for another. So 
that's that's where I see our primary goal going at, at focus uh, over the next two years, let's say. Great. Yeah. Starting by building that infrastructure, connecting existing services. And mm -hmm. once that infrastructure is, is moving things along, connecting people in the right ways, then you have the uh, infrastructure in place to be able to add your own and do so with a massive uh, population sample to test things and build the evidence for your interventions working. So I can, yeah, I can see the roadmap. Yeah. So this sounds like a very neat solution, um, you know, really shining a light on these dark areas of the mind that we don't understand with data. And of course, connecting uh, these kind of interventions with the people who need them at the right time, uh, in the right place, with the right person. But what else do you think is missing in mental health? Do you think this is a comprehensive solution? And if so, then how how is it addressing every part of it? If not, what else is missing here? So I don't think it's a comprehensive solution, actually. I think um, any any kind of uh, technology or support that, that's in the mental health space or, or world um, ultimately should should recognise it's just one piece of a, of a very large jigsaw puzzle. Um, and it's, it's a spectrum. Uh, it's very grey. I mean, it's easy that when we're talking about investment or categorising ourselves on LinkedIn, that we are a mental health company and we see that this company sits within a mental health space or it doesn't. Actually, the truth be told is that most things in our lives have some minor or major impact on our mental health. So where do we draw the line on the learning and development platform provided by employees? You know, where education plays a role, um, career progression, financial well-being, um, the relationship between a manager and a team member, um, physical fitness, for example. As you can imagine, that if you took a negative lens on any of these, they would very likely have a negative impact on mental health. And yet they wouldn't be classified in any way as mental health technology or mental health services. So everything is a spectrum and recognizing that you fit into that is, is really important. But the, the aspect I would say is that I think self-awareness, anything you can do to improve self-awareness is absolutely key. Emotional intelligence, I think, is the future. I think that that's going to be one of the, the hardest things for artificial general intelligence to be able to replicate. Number one, that the, the creativity and the emotional intelligence that underpins relationships and human experiences will probably be one of the last things, if ever, that AI can take away from, from us as, as humans, if you will. So improving emotional intelligence, self-awareness, absolutely crucial because ultimately we are our own canaries down the mines, canary down the mines, if you will. Um, you can't really get much more proactive than recognizing your own mental state, if you will. Um, that's always going to win out on anything. So that's, I think, number one. Number two is creating a, a world where far more people are trained and qualified in different facets of support. I'm a big proponent of moving towards a predictive and proactive model to, to mental health. I think you will always need an incredibly, uh, incredibly supportive model of reactive mental health support. And so I think that making sure that we, ha we have a, a well-funded, well-established reactive support network um, whether you know every university doubles its number of uh, well-being uh, professionals 
whether it's training lecturers, for example, in some degree of well-being, whether it's uh, a corporate mandate that every company has at least one mental health therapist on site as part of the HR team, as standard practice, for example. I think that's really important as well. Now, there are two things. I mean, the emotional intelligence side of it, Mind Data definitely touches on, but certainly, you know, bolstering the, the, the amount of resource that uh, is in the support network. You know, Mind Data doesn't directly address that. We can highlight and we can say we think you'd, you'd need X in Y. Um, we can measure the effectiveness of when you employed that person, uh, but we don't provide that. So I think that there are two elements that, that need addressing much closer to the, the mental health side of this, this spectrum. So educating people on how to gain greater insight into their mind and mm -hmm. making the appropriate resources that much more in reach wherever they are, whether it's a workplace mm -hmm. or school or if yeah. they are on their phone all the time, for yeah. example. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes complete sense. Those sound like very fundamental things. And I guess for anyone listening, it opens up some possible avenues for innovation, which is very exciting. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Now, of course, the name is Mind Data. And as you mentioned, data is king. How valuable do you think all this data is that you're collecting? And how are you making this data as valuable as possible? Yeah, I mean, data in and of itself uh, is, is generally not that, you know, there's a difference between data and information, right? And information is data in context. So I think that, you know, the data can be very valuable if, you know, analyzed in the right way, presented in the right way, and crucially used in the right way. There's no point having all this data if it's not leveraged uh, and put back into this kind of flywheel approach and, and use this data to address some of the triggers and drivers of lower mental health. So I think that um, data in context is going to increasingly become more and more valuable. I think one of the things that we'll see over the next five years is Quite understandably, a lot of uh, organizations have, have put in um, resources support after the pandemic. Awesome. If, However, if we're going to continue that for the next five to 10 years, at some point, you know, the CFO, senior leadership, uh, even employees, they're going to want to say, well, is this working? Um, maybe we've got a reduced budget, for example. So where do we put this investment? Who should we be targeting? At what point? You know, we can't keep spending hundreds of thousands on a broad brush approach and not really seeing the dial move. So I think that over the next five years, we will become more intelligent in the way that we invest and create mental health support mechanisms. It has to be. Um, so I think that that's a good example. I hope it's a good example of, of how data will underpin the future of mental health. But I think to bring it back to your original question, insights are always gonna be more important than data. You can't have insights without data. It's a somewhat of a necessary evil, but it's, it's going to be about insights. You know, maybe one day we'll rename to mind insights or something. Uh, but um, I think that that's going to be really important, getting the right people around the table uh, using these meaningful insights to move the dial for targeted individuals. So data that enables one to change something take action in their life whether that be for the user the therapist yeah. the organization its value is determined by the action that it, it can help um uh, in, uh, stimulate which is absolutely a, a good way to frame it now 
lastly, because the time has flown by, um, what are you working on right now that excites you the most? Well, actually, you know, the thing that we're working on at the moment is looking at more creative ways of how we can improve the types of insights we have, how to expand that data lake, and how do we very cleverly derive meaningful insights from there. And I, my, my exciting thing that I really want to tackle over the next two years is passive collection. I think that would be a really exciting point. Obviously, we're, we're a growing company and we have to actively engage people to collect certain data. But, you know, the future of being able to, you know, cross-reference um, social media usage, as an example, passively, like just don't do anything different. Let us just kind of take data points that are relevant. Obviously, the number one thing here is ethical collection of data. It's the number one thing that, that we do at Minds Data. A legal bar tends to be lower than an ethical bar, typically, in how you collect and use data. Always set an ethical bar for yourself, not a legal. Um, so that's really important. But I think that excitingly um, creating uh, paths of passive collection from non-directly related mental health data points would be really important to be able to, be able to build a, a holistic digital um, mask of someone and and leverage that one analogy that i'm actually working on at the moment to create some maybe some instagram uh ads are look at the end of the day spotify probably has more tailored personalized data on me to, to be able to reflect on what i listen to who i listen to for how many minutes during the year that type of insight that granularity dare i say is probably more detailed than what the average university or organization has on the, their employees mental health for example and that's a travesty that should not be the case so taking the mechanisms that google or spotify use the granularity of that data to be able to target ads we should be using that same technology to have that laser targeted approach to support individuals and provide organizations with a spotify wrapped approach to individuals why you know why shouldn't we be having that level of detail again Ethically, ethically, you know, the individual has to have autonomy because that's crucial. Uh, you can't sneakily take this uh, and say, surprise, here's your mental health wrapped that your manager's using to fire you, for example. Um, has to be ethical collection, you know, privacy by design, autonomy to the individual. But that passive collection to have hyper-targeted insights, man, that's something I'm really excited about over the next couple of years that, that I think my data can be, play a big part in. Wow. Totally agree. Is that something you're working on right now? The this passive collection of yeah. data. Yeah. Well, so, well, ideation stage. Um, hmm. You know, we're, we're certainly at that stage of ideating. We're we're about to uh, open up a, a, a another round of investment, and um, I think that you know we'll, we'll look at some R and D to really understand integrations, passive collection through APIs. You know, I think it's really important to build up that holistic view. That's very exciting. Very exciting indeed. Sean, it has been a pleasure to learn about all the work that you and your team are doing at Mind Data to help people better understand themselves and access the support they need at the right time with the right person. So for everyone listening, how can people support and follow Mind Data? 
That's very kind. So minddata.io, minddata.io. And actually, I share um, a lot of um, updates and insights on my founder's journey as well um, from my LinkedIn page. So, you know, hopefully you'll see my name on this podcast episode, but Sean Ruane, find me on LinkedIn. It's quite a rare name, so hopefully I'll come up fairly towards the top of the list. But uh, also connect with me there. I'm happy to talk about all things mental health and technology and the founder's life. So they're the two main aspects, I would say. Perfect. Well, Sean, I will be connected with you on all of those aspects uh, into the future. And I very much encourage everyone else to do so as well. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invite. This was a pleasure. Every startup that has featured on MindTech is solving a mental health problem with a technology-enabled solution. To get a full picture of all the problems these startups are working on and all the solutions they're offering, sign up to the email list in the description to access the MindTech matrix. This is the first visual representation of how mental health problems are being matched by innovative solutions. You'll also be updated whenever there's a new episode and get early access to test some of the products that are discussed in the podcast. Everything you need is in the description.